0: Welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christoph van Houten, and today it is my honor and pleasure to be joined by Professor Ruth Finkelstein, who is professor at New York's Hunter College School of Urban Public Health and the Rose Dobroff Executive Director of the Brookdale Center for Healthy Aging at the same college, besides also being a member of the National Council on Aging and a representative to the UN for the International Association of Geriatrics and Gerontology. Hello, Ruth, and welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for being with us. Now, in these past months, we have here at PICT already covered a number of issues related to our current situation in this COVID-19 pandemic. But one aspect was still missing. And this aspect, which can't be ignored as days continue, and we are here in Europe almost all again once living under very strict rules. So the aspect that can't be ignored anymore is our mental health. A mental health which has been seriously put to the test by the rules and by this pandemic that have been uh, coming all over us. Now, in today's and a coming podcast, we will focus on the mental health situation of two specific groups which have been kept separate in this context. And it is told that they have, albeit in different ways, been particularly put to the test by this pandemic. These groups are, on the one hand, the younger generation, that is the teenagers, and on the other hand, the elderly. And I thought it would to start with this last group. But before confronting the specific topic of mental health, I would like to start with a question that questions our talk, or better, the specific group of people we will discuss, the elderly. So Ruth, do you think the emphasis on a well-defined and separate category of people identified as the elderly is a good or even an actual thing? doesn't it also carry the risk of pitting one age group against another, creating perhaps a new kind of identity politics of age with the young and the elderly, in particular in opposing camps? Or to put this question in a very basic way, do you think that the category of the elderly really exists beyond the basic biological reality of age?
1: Short answer, no. I don't think that this is a useful category. And I think that we need to interrogate even our pre-assumptions uh, that there is a basic biological category of age. Because what we know very clearly is that while the passage of years, the phenomenon of the aging of the body is exciting, in biology, it may be more useful to think about those biological phenomena as having been caused by social phenomena. So bear with me; I'm not just talking sort of new age shite. I'm talking very specific science. What we know is that our aging is determined by our entire life course. We begin to age before we're born. And the process of aging continues as as long as we're alive, right? We're aging and then we, we die and then we stop aging because we're deaf. Um, but all along the way, we're aging. And how we age is very heavily influenced by how we live. So, those people who grow up in environments where the air is toxic where the work that they need to do and the ways that their bodies are able to develop from a young age and the experiences that they have from a young age on forward are all negative. Age in a less good way than those people who grow up and live their adult lives with a sense of purpose, a sense of agency, in safety, in well-being, with the experience of loving others and others love them. And their old age is far more likely not to be riddled with disability, discontent, and disease, but the old age of people who have lived extremely difficult lives is far more likely to have those characteristics. The, this phenomenon is called cumulative advantage cumulative disadvantage, and it's a pernicious consequence of inequity that it that makes that inequity an intergenerational phenomenon, because not only do the differences in health and well-being and ability and Economic standing and so on grow across the life course, but obviously then are handed down to the next generation, who by definition is starting um, their lives in the less felicitous circumstance. And this shows a gradient across degrees of stress. And it also has a temporal relationship. That is, from generation to generation, this phenomenon appears to be increasing. So this is why I'm 66 years old, right? In many societies, I'm old. I'm over many people's retirement. I, you know, the ideal retirement age, I'm over the age of 60 where various, you know, entitlements for benefits begin. You know, these are the sort of sentinel definitions of oldness, right? But, uh, you know, but you look at me and you say, yeah, okay, you know, her hair is gray or gray and brown, you know. Her, you know, little, you know, little cute face is a little spread out at this point. You know, she's a little bit shorter. (laughs) She's a little bit wider. But at the same time, I work full time. I raise a family. I'm very active politically. I volunteer. uh, 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 You know, I have a full big life that is not principally arranged around my age, yet the neighborhood where my office once stood, uh, I'm assuming it stands there still, not that I would know, um, is 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 a very poor neighborhood and has been for a long time. And the women walking around there who are the same age as me are many, not all obviously, of course, but many are bent with the, what we call a walker. What do you call a zimmer or what do you call anyway? But you know, assistance to walk in a house coat and wearing slippers. And you say to yourself, why are they wearing slippers? And then I look at their feet and I look at my feet. And one of the things that happens after you stand on your feet for 60 some odd years is they get to get some knobs and some bobs and some like little, you know, they change shape a bit. But I can afford these. Very expensive shoes that my feet slip into beautifully. And on the outside, they look like regular shoes. And on the inside, they facilitate my walking. But they cost money a lot. And so, what do you do when you don't have that kind of money for a pair of shoes? You put on what you can wear, which is slippers or it's, you know, these plastic things, they're called Crocs here. I don't know what they're called. Um, Oh my God, I thought you were too stylish to wear them, but anyway. Um, Yeah. (laughs) No, I just sort of in my fantasy life, no one in the European capital would be caught dead in a Croc. But anyway, anyway, oh my God, now we're going to be sued. But you know, uh maybe you'll maybe you'll cut that down. Uh but the point is but the point is that these A these don't support your feet in the same way. And so walking is not facilitated in the same way. A B they're not fit for purpose in the cold weather. So people are even more Isolated and cooped up and unable to move around once it's wet and cold and, you know, snowy and so forth. And number three, in most cases, the feet being encased by those flippers have had a harder life in the first place than my feet have, you know, what's my feet's job has been to, you know, walk me around up and down the classroom, up and down the halls, up and down to the train, you know, you know, maybe out to the country when I'm very energetic. Um but they have not had the job of walking me through, you know, my factory work every day or my direct care work every day. Or, you know, my cleaning job every day. Um, and, and so you just see, I, you know, the feet is not the key to the whole thing, but the feet is, are kind of an easily grasped metaphor where you can see why I'm striding down the block and someone next to me may not be.
0: So you were talking about shoes, but I think we can also talk about the pandemic in this context you mentioned, and uh, especially uh, the, what one could call the age specific rules. Uh, there, it's a highly loaded discussion in some parts here in Europe. In, in France, for example, age specific containment measures for COVID have been harshly criticized and rejected. Whereas in other countries, for example, Turkey, are routinely implemented and you hear more and more people who talk about uh, closing off uh, separate groups or distinguishing between several groups of people and saying that one group can live their lives freely and the others can't. Uh, so maybe you can talk a bit about that but before you can do that I, I was also want to put at the same time here in, in, this, in this picture and this might not be very familiar in the US but here in Europe the countries that have been Hardest hit, uh, mostly were hardest hit because of uh, so many uh, deaths in the uh, elderly homes, or what we call elderly homes. Now, for as much as many investigations here are still pending, uh, what is rather clear is that many of these deaths could have been avoided, as they were simply caused by those who were supposed to protect them. And I'm talking here about italy about belgium about the netherlands and spain and i could go on where six pe- sick people were simply placed in free beds in homes so maybe you could first say something about those specific age rulings and then maybe also if you want to talk about some of, of the policy failures in this pandemic and this specifically regarding the yeah
1: um those things are actually interrelated. And so let me talk about them together, if I may. Um, the So epidemiologically, um, we need to make some distinctions here. The coronavirus, you know, SARS-CoV-2, uh, which causes this illness that we call COVID, um, in fact, people of different ages at quite similar rates. The exception to that appears to be that there is some less um, infectiousness among young children. And that's something I don't think we know enough about to be sure about. And that's not what I want to talk about, but for adults, for teenagers young adults medium sized adults medium aged adults and older adults the rate of infection in appears to be quite similar what and in fact to be influenced by behaviors much more than age so that people's probability of being infected has to do with the kind of work they do so, you know, if you're a healthcare worker or another kind of worker like a meat packing plant worker who is required to have very close contact with others either because of the nature of your work or because of the perniciousness of your employer to not allow you to work in safe conditions. Um, that increases your likelihood of, of being in Infected, not not sick and dying. I'm talking about, but infected. Other, you know, other conditions and circumstances that contribute to being infected are congregate living arrangements, and these range everything from dormitories, you know, college dormitories, to homeless shelters, to prisons, to old age homes of various kinds, you know, places where people live closely together, not controlling the distance between them contribute to likelihood of infectiousness. Some people have spoken about urban density, but urban density is not actually the issue. It's housing crowding. So it's not, how many people live in your square mile. It's how many people live in your apartment um, that, that contributes to, you know, your probability of uh, getting uh, COVID. However, the thing that created headlines and that has very strongly influenced our understanding that old people are at grave risk is that early on in the epidemic, there were large, deadly clusters in nursing homes and old-age homes across the world. It was true in China. It was true in many places in Western Europe. And it was true in the U.S. It And the fact that it was early in the epidemic is crucial because those clusters constitute a bigger proportion of the total when it's early days and there are not a lot of other infections um, counteracting our impression that this is a deadly disease of the old. And so that idea got fixed in our mind too strongly by the circumstances at the beginning. This is part of the how the social construction of uh, diseases occurs is we get fixed ideas about who is in danger and those ideas encode and they capture and they form vehicles for Our preoccupations as a society. So I don't think it's sort of chance alone. I think it was a very appealing, in some ways, idea that these people that we feel so ambivalent about and why are we supporting them and aren't they kind of, you know, decrepit and I'm so, so, you know, ambivalent about this um, at best um, are now, oh my God you know, causing all the causing, right, we move, we move from victims to vectors all of a sudden, Uh, causing all this illness and death and inconvenience to the rest of us. I know what we'll do. We'll section them off and for their own safety, for their own good, for their own protection. And if we do that, then we can go on about our life as usual, because we are safe. And this is a very handy kind of psychological protectant, right? We then get, we get to understand whose fault it is. We get to understand that we personally are not at risk. Somebody else is at risk. And we have a course of action to take that will not incommode us very much. It's just going to fall on these other people and it's for their own good. So what's wrong with this picture? Number one, there's some epidemiological fallacy going on. Um, it You know, when you look at the proportion of all the deaths from COVID among old people, some 60% of them in this country have been in congregate living settings. So we're way overestimating the risk to old people in community settings by Um, combining the data from the congregate settings with the community settings, Um, A. And then B. As time has gone on, it's become clearer that what places an individual who's been infected with COVID at risk for being seriously ill from COVID are multiple social, and biological factors which may correlate with age but don't necessarily have to. So a 50-year-old with these certain underlying conditions, not rare ones, very common ones like diabetes, like heart disease, um, is at greater risk for death than a 65-year-old who doesn't have those conditions. But, of course, those conditions, the likelihood of those conditions also increases with age. So it is absolutely the case that more old people who have COVID get very sick and die from a combination of having these more conditions some things about age and the circumstances of their lives, because COVID infection, COVID serious sickness and COVID death is also associated with um, being black and brown in this country with poverty um, and with particular conditions of living. So you've got, you know, this is this is sort of overdetermined, and most of these causes are not addressed by a program of isolation by age.
0: Yeah, and, and staying in 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 this context. Um... We are here, uh, and I'm not really following the media coverage in the U.S., I'm mainly following it here, and it's already depressing enough to follow it on this continent, instead of adding two continents. But we here are bombarded um, by images of of, uh, uh, old people in in those terribly looking ventilation plastic bags and then are simply behind plexiglass who are crying their eyes out. And it's like we are being bombarded with these images to, uh, to, to affect our behavior. But then I, I would ask a, a, maybe a rude question. The isolation, is the isolation of, of, of people of older age uh, so horrible and inhuman, does it really affect so much on their mental health as it would affect maybe a younger person who is isolated? Yeah.
1: So, first of all, those images are manipulative, intended to make you follow the rule, right? Because you're supposed to feel sorry for the person who's crying and so you're supposed to do the social distancing that's being prescribed for you and the, and so on. And you're supposed to be motivated by your feelings of care and of guilt and of, you know, upsetness about that person. Now, if you strip away the manipulative, you know, advertising aspect of this. What you find is that social isolation is deadly for everyone. That, And it's very damaging for the mental health of everyone. The studies here in this country are quite consistent that since the COVID, you know, lockdowns, have begun, people's mental health in this country has taken a significant downturn, everybody. And you can write two very different headlines from the state, same, the largest, the most representative, the sort of best studies. Um, One headline is Older adults, a third of older adults, are suffering from significant depression and anxiety, an increase from it was only 10% of older adults before the pandemic. So that's a huge increase, and it's a lot of people, right? The other headline that you can write from the same study is that 40% of adults in the country overall are suffering from anxiety and depression. So then you notice an interesting thing. In fact, the rate, which is terrible, it's a terrible rate, a third of old people, that's awful. um, The rate is actually lower for older adults than it is for adults overall. And that Finding is reproduced in study after study. So we can, you know, just as easily put up a picture of a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 12-year-old, a, a, you know, a, a 50-year-old similarly crying behind plexiglass. None of which is to... um in any way, minimize the despair and the sadness of being kept from your loved ones, particularly, you know, if you live alone, which is more likely to be true for older people than for younger people. But I will tell you that before COVID, you know, when I taught aging to college students and we teach a lot about the seriousness of social isolation and loneliness. Time after time, the insight that my students had was that they were isolated, they were lonely, and they were dismayed by the lives that they were leading in terms of how much actual human contact they had as opposed to uh, virtually and digitally. And, you know, a regular occurrence is for people to realize that they needed to change how they were living their lives. Um, You know, and these are kids in their late teens and early 20s so i think the sort of crisis um which sociologists have talked about for years now of the fraying of our communitarian kind of values but then also of our social connections as we replace them all with work you know which is now um uh a far less social experience than it once was um, has left you know generations
0: bowling along, Mm-mm. yeah. yeah and, and 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 this this epidemic has only put the uh, the, the, the exclamation point at, uh, at all these problems that were already there. If, if I may yeah. cover just one more point, and uh, which is very closely related again, uh, but one thing that uh, has somewhat bothered me, is that in this whole situation, um, citizens and, and just the the normal people, uh, they have been uh, treated like uh, little babies, like uh, it, we have been infantilized. And And one thing that I have noticed is that if there is one group that has been infantilized even more than any other group of the people, then it is the people of the older age. This is, however, not something that is just related to this pandemic. This was already the case well before this started out. But could you say something about this infantilization of the old people?
1: Yeah, it is. It's it's really one of the manifestations of ageism. You know, ageism is it's a real thing. It's a prejudice that is based on a set of stereotypes about old people and you know the stereotypes about old people are that they're foolish they can't remember you know they're disfigured they're uh they're they're, they're needy and uh they can't you know defer their gratification at all You know, and then they continue on, you know, and these are all characteristics shared with infants. And then you go on, you know, into the uglier dimensions of the stereotypes, you know, where they're incontinent and they're, you know, can't control their appetites. And, you know, it goes on and on. And you have, in fact, a large ungainly baby your mind before you're done with it you know can't make good decisions have no judgment you know and so it's hardly surprising that we start you know bossing people around and telling them what to do once we've created in our mind a, you know a 100 stone you know a 100 pound uh, infant you know um you know and you sort of know that you've got ageism at its very best and we see it you know all the time, in all sorts of subtle ways, you know in this country, it's like appalling to imagine serving a drink in a senior center and sort of like really what what why seriously they, they, <laughs> there's a group of people that have been drinking for fifty years, they probably mostly have it. I kind of down by this time why are we now protecting people from uh themselves you know and and it it's you know you can catch it when you listen to people particularly in the helping professions but you hear it all the time you can hear it in the grocery all of a sudden someone's voice turns to kind of treacle and they say, may I help you, dear? And it's like you realize, oh, either we've got an out-of-control two-year-old in the aisle or, much more likely, an old person. Um, And so now we have this really big mess where part of the appropriate um, you Part of the appropriate implementation of public health protocols is that governments are supposed to tell people to take actions or not take actions that are different than their usual patterns for the protection of the public's health. It's one of public health. Responsibilities. But the way that it's being done and the way that public health has been denigrated by conservatives that don't want public health to say rude things like, don't smoke in your office. Right. Um, And what what is it called when people say don't smoke in the office? They say the nanny state, you're telling us what to do. We should have freedom and know what to do. So we've already got that framework where we accuse public health authorities of being like bossy adults bossing around children when they issue public health proclamation. We've got our tendency to think of old people as, you know, giant toddlers because of our ageism. And then all of that comes together when we've got a set of public health instructions that are particularly geared to old people. And lo and behold, we all sound, you know, it sounds like we're being sort of told what to do by irritated parents. But then again, the populace is reacting like a rebellion adolescent. So we've just sort of devolved into a, a sort of dysfunctional family at a time when we need to be pulled together as a very interconnected and concerned community.
0: So we've really kind of gone that. <laughs> yes. To conclude, maybe we can add with a positive note. Do you think <laughs> that there's a lesson that the uh, the people of a younger age can or should learn, and especially from the people of an older age, and maybe specifically regarding one's attitude or behavior in this pandemic times?
1: Yeah, you know, there are very um, inspiring perspectives from older adults um, who are weathering this storm, many of them with an attitude of resilience and uh, hope that comes partly from having weathered other storms. You know, we have survivors of the Blitz, survivors of the Holocaust, survivors of the Depression, survivors of, you know, multiple wars. We... um, and survivors of, you know, multiple, uh, you know, sur- survivors of the Jim Crow era in this country, you know, and battlers for women's rights and human rights and civil rights and tenants' rights and urban rights and, you know, rural rights and so on and so on, all in the population of older people, and a very strong mutual aid perspective um, gained from necessity and experience and point of view. And so at our best, old people are thriving, not because of this epidemic, but despite it and offer a lot of examples of how to repurpose your passion into the present moment from people who've had to do it over and over again in their lives.
0: Okay, thank you for these uh, uh, sustaining words and positive words. And thank you also for being with us here at Pick Voices Root. It's a real pleasure listening to you, and we could go on and on and on, but I think that we have to call it quits for today. So thank you for being uh, with us, and thank you also to the listeners of Picked Voices, and we hope to hear you all. We hope you to hear us all very soon again. Goodbye, and thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Okay, goodbye.